Howdy, folks, and welcome to A Green Way Forward. I'm your host, David Cobb, coming at you from Eureka, California, joined, as always, by co-host Michael O'Neill in Syracuse, New York. Howdy, Michael. Greetings, David. So, uh, folks, we're really excited because this show is one of the topics that Michael and I like the most because the topic is we'll talk about whatever you want to talk about. This is news of the day or news of the week slash open lines. So uh, if there is any topic that you want to talk about and you're listening to us live on Facebook, just type it into the comments and we'll get to it when we can. Uh, And that is a reminder that if you are watching us live on Facebook, please share this link on your own page and any page that you mention that you manage as we continue to build this movement as we build our audience. If you were listening to us on a podcast, thanks for that. And also, please share this podcast with your family, your friends, and other people in your various networks. As always on Open Lines, I will throw out a couple of topics that are of note that we'll get to. One is the Green New Deal, which is really getting continued conversation. Of course, the war dreams are are beating for Venezuela. We're going to, I think, make sure that we talk about that. Uh, Donald Trump's so-called national emergency uh, and his use of that in order to build a wall and the fact that states are now uh, filing lawsuit or lining up to file lawsuits against him. There's Amazon pulling out of New York City and what that means. There's Representative Omar in Minneapolis uh, and the the challenges or the claims of anti-Semitism, which are really nothing more than smears, with a note that it's the same exact thing that Jeremy Corbyn experienced. So there really is a lot to talk about. uh, And I'm going to encourage you again, if there's any topic that you want to weigh in on, either by asking a question or bringing up up the concept, use the comment section and we'll get to it. Michael O'Neill, I want to make sure that we have a conversation about the Green New Deal And I'm going to start by saying the Green Party is showing up in The Hill with a fantastic op-ed piece uh, from co-chairs Gloria Matera and Margaret Flowers. But wait, there's more. Both Jill Stein and Howie Hawkins get a mention uh, on Market Watch with NPR. And wait, there's even more. Howie Hawkins gets a fantastic op-ed in the paper of record from the New York State Capitol in the Times Union. We're everywhere all of a sudden. We're breaking through, David. You know, we're, we're doing the good work out there. Greens are getting the message out. And that is so important because it's not enough just to know that we were there first to campaign on this going back to 2010, 2012, 2016. Uh, it's... It's about fighting for the version of the Green New Deal we know that this planet needs and that this country needs. And that's what's so impressive about uh, these media hits. And just, you know, getting off right off the top with uh, this uh, national platform in The Hill, uh, Margaret Flowers and Gloria Matera, two of the co-chairs of the Green Party of the United States. Gloria Matera, of course, friend of the show. We just had Gloria Matera on last week for her, her regular monthly contribution to a Green Way Forward. And of course, very dear to my heart as a co-chair of the Green Party of New York State. And they just really hit the ball out of the park talking about how the, the Democrats version of the Green New Deal, or at least, well, even the best 
Democrat version of the Green New Deal. And, and remember, we've talked about there's three versions of the Green New Deal. There's the AOC Green New Deal, which is ambitious, but maybe not as specific and transformative as we would like. Then there's the watered-down corporate Democrat Green New Deal. And so... Which yeah. is neither green, nor, nor new, nor, nor a deal. deal. Exactly. Yeah. And so this op-ed in The Hill, which I've posted a link to the comments, and I would really love to hear people's feedback on that if you haven't had a chance to read it yet, um, talks about how it's important that a Green New Deal plan needs to address a a real science-based deadline for how we get to uh, a fossil fuel emission-free society that it has to address cutting the military budget, the military being the world's largest consumer of oil and a huge consumer of our wealth uh, every year as a nation, and that uh, we have to be clear about where we're getting the energy from. Truly renewable, truly uh, fossil fuel-free sources like solar, wind, uh, geothermal, not natural gas, not nukes, and not biomass. And uh, so I think they did a great job of of drawing a line about what a a more transformative Green New Deal that includes a just transition for workers who currently work in extractive fossil fuel based industries. We cannot leave these uh, working folks to the side of history. They need to be provided with job placement and job training and whatever assistance is necessary. And that the infrastructure that we build the renewable energy system that we build needs to be publicly owned and democratically managed. I love how you actually talk about that, Michael, and I'm going to actually encourage folks, please uh, click that click that link uh, that Michael has included in the in Facebook. And if you're listening, uh, then just go to thehill.com and do a search uh, for Green New Deal. It'll pop right up. It's really important that you share that particular piece on your own Facebook page and for extra credit, comment in the comment section. Uh, This is a way for Greens to use the fantastic work that Gloria and Margaret did uh, to continue to leverage that. It's important that we show the Hill uh, that whenever they include Green Party voices, uh, that it actually generates clicks and reads uh, and so forth. Michael, one of the things that I really appreciated about what uh, Gloria and Margaret did is they didn't whine. They didn't start or make their thesis of it a complaint about how AOC is, quote, stealing the Green New Deal. Instead, they talked about the opportunity that exists to actually define what the Green New Deal must be. And they really challenged both lawmakers and candidates to clarify the stances. I thought that the the framing uh, that they used was really powerful. Absolutely. And, and they really drive home that this is about for the sake of the planet, right? This is the, for the lives of our, our grandchildren. And that this is not about political convenience. It's not about scoring points. Uh, and, it's, and it's not just about a green jobs program. We need to transform our society. yes, for to stop climate change, but also to stop the economic and social exploitation that are oppressing and exploiting people every day in this country and around the world. 
Absolutely right. And I think Kelton, who writes in with an astute observation, Kelton says the Democrats just want to take ideas from Bernie and Jill and hopes for votes. Let's be clear, Kelton. They're taking language. They're taking posture. Uh, they're taking a front. But they are not actually taking on the ideas and putting them into the kind of program that, uh, that both Jill Stein, Howie Hawkins and the Green Party represent. And I'm going to actually say it again because I think it's an important framing device. There are actually three Green New Deals. Number one, the real Green New Deal, which is also known as the Green Party's New Deal, which both addresses and mitigates climate change, but also addresses the the transformation of our economic system away from capitalism towards eco-socialism in order to actually do the work that needs to be done to survive. And second, a scathing critique and a call to completely transform U.S. foreign policy away from empire and theft of resources, specifically oil, coal, and other natural resources, and towards a just transition. That's the first Green New Deal, the Green Party's Green New Deal, the real Green New Deal. The second version is, of course, AOC's version, which is Let's be honest, Michael, it's actually pretty good on climate mitigation. She's got some really good stuff in there, and we make a mistake not to acknowledge it. But you know what AOC doesn't do? She doesn't actually talk about public ownership. And thank you so much to Libet, who uh, writes in in the comments section, uh, to say yes to public ownership. The Green Party is clear about the call for public ownership and public decision-making. In addition to that, AOC strips away any critique of foreign policy uh, and the military-industrial complex. The third Green New Deal, which is neither green nor new nor a deal, is the neoliberal version of it that Pelosi is trying to do. And isn't it interesting, Michael, that Pelosi like says, you know, that green dream or whatever it is, in a complete uh, underhanded uh, insult to both AOC and the whole concept of the Green New Deal. You know damn well she knew exactly what uh, that is called, and she was using it to denigrate uh, the progressive momentum that's building on a Green New Deal. Absolutely, and it's the kind of ruling class dismissiveness that one really has to practice over decades of years being a part of the entrenched power structure and the economic and political elite. And you're absolutely right. Uh, it was not some lapse in verbiage. She knew exactly what she was doing. And so, and you know, it's interesting because David, not this David, but one of the, the viewer listeners writes in to say, I like that some progressive Dems are embracing a form of the green new deal, but I have no faith in the democratic national committee or the Democratic Party leadership actually following through on it. I got to say, David, uh, I think you're spot on about that. And I thought that Howie uh, actually did a good job uh, of that version of it. Uh, Michael, you want? Are you in a position to throw up the uh, the uh, Times Union piece and the op-ed that Howie Hawkins wrote? Absolutely. And of course, we've had Howie Hawkins on the show when he was running for governor as the Green Party candidate for governor of New York last year. And I had the honor of serving as his campaign manager. And I just put that link in the comments. And Howie, in, in his 
uh, op-ed. And again, this this is the, the Albany Times Union. For those who don't live in New York State, you might be aware that Albany is the capital of New York. And so the Times Union is, uh, I would say, as a political newspaper, it's only second to the New York Times in terms of its political reach and impact. It's the paper record for the capital district. And so to have the platform where Howie can talk about the Green New Deal as an eco-socialist program. That's in the very first sentence of his op-ed and and outlining what was very important to him during his campaign, that this is not just a green jobs program. This is about securing universal economic rights to a living wage job, an adequate income, decent housing, comprehensive health care, a good education, and all of the uh, transformation of our energy system that is needed to get to 100% clean renewable energy by 2030, because that's what the science tells us should be our deadline, and that we need to have a renewable, publicly owned, uh, democratically run energy system as a result of that. Now, And I got to say, Michael O'Neill, I, I, I really would love to, to, to do a quick research on the Times Union out of Albany and just find out when is the last time or how often is the phrase eco-socialism ever even appear in the New York State paper of record. Uh, Howie's op-ed piece is, is just it, it's astute, it's brilliant writing, it's persuasive, it's also quite accessible. I thought Howie did a phenomenal job. Well, David, I can tell you that uh, the word eco-socialism last appeared in the Times Union in 2009, according to their website. <laughs> uh, it's in a book review um, about how a group of indigenous folks were able to endure a drought. And so, you know, uh, Times Union gets around. Uh, there's a fair... Well, all I'm saying is this is yet another example of how you pointed out that we are really breaking through because now let's go to the fact that we actually got a mention, both Jill Stein and Howie Hawkins, in NPR's Market Watch. Michael, what's going on? Well, this is hard work bearing some fruit. And so, uh, in, you know, Market Watch of all places... Uh, yeah, they, they did a breakdown, a point-by-point point breakdown contrasting the Green New Deal as the Greens have campaigned for it since 2010 and what is being proposed uh, primarily by the, by the AOC uh, Green New Deal resolution. And so they talk about how for the 2030 goals, which is great um, – in the Ocasio-Cortez-Markey version, they aim to eliminate U.S. carbon footprint by 2030. But, uh, for instance, in, in Jill Stein's 2016 platform, it explicitly calls for a complete phase-out of fossil fuels by 2030. And the Democrats' version calls for one, meeting 100% of power through clean sources, but doesn't contain the phase-out language. And uh, then it goes on to compare the different language on the job that NPR is actually describing it, right? They're actually literally using Jill and Howie as examples. They're literally reporting on our position. That almost never happens. Exactly. And they mention how the Ocasio-Cortez slash Markey proposal doesn't mention a carbon tax, whereas the Stein campaign did talk about a carbon tax. And it gets even better, Michael, because I understand that so that's that's uh, Howie and Jill being mentioned uh, in NPR's Market Watch. 
I understand how he was on a radio station recently uh, talking about the Green New Deal. I want you to tell the story you told me off air because it made me chuckle. Yeah. So uh, I get a text message kind of late at night saying, uh, hey, you know, we want to have Howie on. Uh, we want to interview him over the phone to talk about the Green New Deal on the Drive Time radio show. This is for a uh, town uh, about an hour east of Syracuse, New York. And I say, great. Uh, they seemed familiar with Howie. Uh, Howie had been on their program in the in the past when he's campaigned for office. And I set up the interview and connected Howie to them and you know, how he connected to them over the phone during their live interview, which the fact that this was live, I think, was key. And so I tune in to listen, of course, because uh, I want to hear what Howie has to say and how he does. And they it's obvious that they were bringing Howie on because they thought that the Ocasio-Cortez Markey Green New Deal proposal was this pie in the sky socialist pipe dream. And they wanted to bring Howie on to debunk it and to and to you know get everyone to settle down and and that you know this this green socialist utopia was just too much to ask for and of course Howie was pushing for even more than what's outlined in the Ocasio Cortez proposal so it, it, watching the the arc of the conversation as they slowly realized they were getting the opposite of what they expected. And of course, if it, they had read even one paragraph of Howie's campaign website, they would know that Howie wants everything that AOC is talking about and more. But they didn't because they're lazy corporate media chuds. And so we use that to our advantage. And so Howie got about 15 minutes to talk about all the transformative programs of a Green New Deal that we're fighting for. And again, I just want to point out, folks, the reason that Howie was in a position to be able to do that is because he has repeatedly run for office, running a serious, credible campaign. Uh, the, the reality is that uh, he was adroit enough to be able to not only be on that program, but to latch onto a live program and being able to shift. I also, uh, before we move off of this topic, Michael, I want to acknowledge Remington, who writes in to ask, how would people with disability who are on Social Security income or DSI, which have not been updated in the last 40 years, benefit under the Green New Deal? I'm going to give you a chance to answer that question, and then I'll share my thoughts. Well, an important distinction in our plan is that the, the jobs guarantee part of the Green New Deal is for all of those who are able to work in the marketplace or not, not in the marketplace, but just in the workplace, right? We're trying to destroy marketplaces, or at least I am. And so, uh, number one, there are people, uh, who have disabilities where the, in, in the current marketplace, it's not profitable to employ them or to make use of their labor, but in a transformed eco-socialist uh, workplace environment, uh, there is a place for folks uh, with disabilities where they may not have access to work under our current profit-driven competitive system. But for those whose uh, disabilities keep them from being able to uh, enter a, a lot of what we think of as a traditional workplace, 
part of a Green New Deal and part of an eco-socialist vision is that their needs will be met and they will be able to live with dignity and comfort. And it is our responsibility, it is our imperative as a society to provide for those folks. And and not just out of sense of, it's not out of charity, it's because, David, either you or I tomorrow could find ourselves in that position. Any one of us could. And so it is just a, a an imperative that uh, we... We care for those who need it and to the extent that they need it. And I especially appreciate both Remington's question, Michael, and how you specifically talked about the fact that it's meaningful work. And I believe this with every fiber of my being. It is a lie that the corporatists have uh, talked about and convinced people that other people are lazy and that they don't want to work. I don't believe that's true. I believe that people want work if we understand work to be meaningful, productive human activity for which we are respected and acknowledged. Everybody deserves to work. It's not that everybody should be forced to work. Everybody deserves to work. They deserve the opportunity to make their contribution uh, to society. And Remington, not only would the Green Party's Green New Deal guarantee that everybody uh, makes a living wage for their contribution. So the the the, the poverty wage that SSI and DSI uh, currently pay. Uh, not only that, but as Michael says, they'll get the opportunity to contribute. And the Green Party's Green New Deal, or the real Green New Deal, is the only one that uh, anticipates, describes creating not unemployment offices, but locally controlled employment offices where you show up because there has been a local democratic decision about the type of work that actually needs to be done within the community to shift to a regenerative uh, form, whether it's for food or energy or schools, hospitals, roads, what have you. Genuine little d democratic decision-making process. And I also want to take that opportunity to lift up Jesse, who says, I'm not exactly sure what, quote, public ownership means, but if it does mean that all Americans own America, then I'm in favor of it, because right now a few people own the country and the rest of us pay rent in the form of taxes to occupy it. What I'd say to Jesse is, yes, you pretty much understand public ownership. Uh, Michael, you want to add anything either to the concept of SSI or or Jesse's idea of public ownership. Well, speaking to Jesse's question, we always as Greens want to talk about public democratic ownership because we have instances of public ownership in this country, and but it's not always democratically managed. And in a lot of countries, uh, we see public ownership frequently of fossil fuel companies, but they're not democratically managed. And so we always want to link, whenever possible, public democratic ownership, whether we're talking about our uh, single-payer health insurance plan or our energy system or the means of, of you know, creating the infrastructure of, of our city and our, and our nation. Public democratic control. Well said. And so I'm going to shift gears a little bit and really appreciate Paul, who writes in with a challenging and provocative question and sort of show that we really take these head on. And thank you, Paul, for writing in with this question. Paul says, if it's a matter of dividing an election or supporting a Democratic candidate for the purpose of ousting Donald Trump, 
Will the Green Party willingly take a back seat for the good of the nation, knowing that a good deal of the Green Party and the Democratic Party's ideals line up, especially in terms of health care and the environment? So, Michael, I'll ask you the question. Will the Green Party willingly take a back seat for the good of the nation just to get rid of Donald Trump? The Green Party has to keep fighting for the policies and the platform that are essential for the the welfare of our planet. And we have to keep fighting for multi-party democracy as an imperative towards uh, achieving real grassroots democracy. And we will not take a back seat in the fight for those goals. And if people are concerned about the nature of the electoral college or the nature of our winner take all undemocratic voting system, then we need to get together and those who have a seat in the existing power structure need to put their shoulder to the wheel of changing that so that people can vote for what they really want without having to worry about uh, what they fear getting elected as a result of a spoiled voting system. So Well said, Michael. I'm going to take it head on, Paul. And when you say, will the Green Party take a back seat for the purpose of ousting Donald Trump? The answer is no. Uh, we are going to continue to build both a movement for peace, justice, democracy, and ecology. Uh, part of the way, not the only way, but part of the way we do that is to run candidates for office, uh, including for president of the United States. As Michael says, if anyone uh, who is an elected official is concerned about the Green Party's growing momentum, then they need to work with us to change the voting system. I'll tell you this, as Frederick Douglass so accurately and astutely put it, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. People know that quote, or at least a lot of people do. But what they don't often say is the next part of that famous quotation. Frederick Douglass went on to say, you show me the amount of injustice that any people are willing to tolerate, and I will show you the exact amount of injustice that will be visited upon them. Here's my point. If really people are already in an anybody but Trump mindset, uh, then what that means is they have given up whatever power they have to demand more from uh, their presidential candidate and demand more from their vote. So we in the Green Party are going to take the same exact posture that we did with the Green New Deal, which is to articulate what we really want and need. We are not taking a back seat. We are going to continue to build that movement. And as Michael O'Neill talked about, it's critical that we actually uh, make a demand not only for systemic transformational change, but to invite anybody who wants to work with us to help us work towards either proportional representation or ranked choice voting. And to say next week on this program, we're going to actually have John Eder a former state legislator of Maine who worked on the successful ranked choice voting initiative in Maine on as a guest. And we can talk about how it was absolutely a requirement uh, for the Green Party to be running those candidates, for independents to be running those uh, candidates. So, Michael, I appreciate that Paul has written into us with the question, but I appreciate also your 
Uh, and my unambiguous uh, answer, nope, we're not backing down. We're going to continue to demand more because you get more only if and only if you demand more. And I got to say, Catherine is writing in to say right on to both uh, David and Michael. Uh, so thanks for that immediate feedback, Catherine. And David, Michael, you have any thoughts there? David, that's why I chose demand more or propose demand more as the slogan for Howie's gubernatorial campaign last year in New York. Demand more is exactly what we need to be doing at every level from city council all the way up to the presidency. And we've just spent over 20 minutes talking about a concept, a vision, the Green New Deal that is now in mainstream debate and mainstream discussion as a direct result of eight years of Green Party candidates tirelessly and fearlessly campaigning for this concept. Voting green works. Absolutely. And uh, I want to say again to repeat, demand more and voting green works. I love that concept. And I also want to uh, shift gears because we did mention Ilhan Omar as a possible topic because we know that uh, she's getting a smear. And I really appreciate Doug who wrote in to say uh, Representative Omar's apology for quote, anti-Semitic tropes actually legitimizes the anti-Semitic tropes based on the conflation of support for Israel and Zionism with Jews. Uh, Representative Omar opposed a counter-demonstration to a protest against her in Minneapolis because of, quote, sincere pain expressed about her tweets. Pressure on her from the Democratic Party leadership may have forced her hand, but the apology is not harmless and the boycott divest uh, movement should not subordinate itself to any party or politician. Michael, what are you, your thoughts on how Doug has outlined this uh, this, this this discussion point? I think Doug makes some important points. I place more of the fault on the Democratic Party elite and establishment for failing to back up uh, Representative Omar. And, and defend her from these these baseless smears that were obviously made in bad faith. And for you know many of the, the points that uh, he makes, which is that to criticize uh, APAC is not to criticize all Jews, to, to associate um, all Jewish people with uh, the policies of APAC is in and of itself um, a kind of uh, a reduction of, of the Jewish people all down to one monolithic sure. block. It may not be anti-Semitic, but it's damn sure prejudiced. C- correct, yeah. And so, um, so uh, you know, it, Representative Omar, as, uh, as a, a black uh, Muslim uh, woman serving in Congress, um, she, while she is an elected member of Congress, she's in a, a relatively vulnerable position. She's already facing... I'm sure a lot of uh, racist smears and attacks and also smears and attacks based on her religion in a country that is, uh, you know, just shot through with with anti-Islamic uh, uh, tendencies and, and, and prejudice. And and of course, the you know racism being one of the founding uh, sins of this country. So. Well, I, I wish that, you know, maybe she would have not opposed the counter demonstration that uh, that uh, our audience member was writing about. I place more of the blame on the Democratic Party power structure for not protecting one of their most vulnerable uh, Congress people from a baseless attack. 
I, I, thank you for that, Michael. And I got to say, like, let's really name the fact that really what Representative Omar said was with APEC and too many members of Congress, quote, it's all about the Benjamins. Now, everybody knows that that is uh, uh, a reference to the $100 bill and Benjamin Franklin. I mean, like, everybody knew that that was the case. I know it, Michael, you know it. Uh, our, our listening audience and our viewership knows it. And it's also and a reference so, to a famous hip hop single, you know, from from Notorious B.I.G. It's a I mean, and, and it's, it's a phrase that is common in pop culture co- parlance. Absolutely. So so and bonus points for knowing the pop culture reference of uh, Notorious B.I.G. Uh, so, you know, a hat tip to you. I'm just going to say everybody knew what that was, that was about. Daddy. OK, sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm showing my weakness here. I think that might have actually been Puff Daddy, but uh, I'm, I'm going ah, to the Internet well, to, to fact check this. Yeah, it, it shows my own ignorance because uh, I didn't know the difference. Right. Uh, but I can tell you, even I, uh, you know, poor white redneck uh, from the South who's 55 years old. Like I knew that all about the Benjamins is about a hundred dollar bill. Right. Like everybody knows that that's what that phrase means in pop culture uh, uh, lexicon. So to somehow say that that was anti-Semitic because Benjamin is a Jewish name and Benjamin Netanyahu, it was some way to undermine or degrade Jewish people. I mean, it's not just flimsy. It's fucking stupid, right? Wow. I hadn't even heard this angle. I'm sorry? I hadn't even heard this angle that, that they thought she was referencing Benjamin Netanyahu. Netanyahu. I thought that they were just... I thought the trope that they were referencing was just that, uh, just like the kind of like protocols of the elders of Zion, the like conspiracy theories that, you know, Jewish people rule the world and, you know, George Soros controls everything. I thought it was that aspect of anti-Semitic propaganda. There are multiple fronts of attack, there are, Michael, certainly. and if you or any viewer listener actually does any research on how the... The, the corporate media and pundits, including leadership of the Democratic Party, have attempted to smear and attack her. Yes, you'll find what you describe. You will also describe the it's all about the Benjamins uh, critique. Wow, like, that is breathtaking. Living. Say again? That's breathtaking. It, it really is. I mean, it, again, you've heard me make this quote before, but it reminds me of the great political philosopher Lily Tomlin who said – no matter how cynical I get, it's hard to keep up. Absolutely. So, uh, listen, I do want to make sure that we get a chance, because uh, I think that we've still got enough time, uh, Michael. I do want to have a quick conversation about Venezuela, uh, because but just and before it's a good that, segue. David, if I can just quickly, I would like to confirm, uh, due to some thorough research, that All About the Benjamins is in reference to a song by Puff Daddy and the Family, not the notorious B.I.G., a green way forward, and myself regrets the error. And uh, <laughs> also, it was used as the title of a 2002 film starring Ice Cube and Mike Epps. Look at that. So see, and, and already Johnny on the spot, uh, a green way forward actually will uh, acknowledge mistakes and make the correction sometimes within minutes of making it. Uh, but I do want to make sure, Michael, that we shift uh, at least a bit to talk about Venezuela. And it's a great segue because did you see Representative uh, Omar grill Alien Abrams? 
Absolutely, yeah, and that that was well needed and well past time. Elliot Abrams is a monster whose uh, human rights abuses and crimes against humanity go back decades. And uh, you know, much like when, um, and he was yeah. found guilty. Let's be right. clear about sure. this. Like, yeah. Representative Omar did not just rant and rave. She literally said, "Why can we trust you when you have been actually found guilty of lying to Congress, and you're here in Congress talking about the need to invade Venezuela?" Right. Like, she did such a masterful job. Yeah. I keep being reminded when uh, John Negroponte was was brought back during the George W. Bush re- regime. And it's like, like, are we going back in time? Like these ghouls who are being brought back out of uh, cold storage, like are, are they put in cryo freeze for the next time when there's a reactionary administration? We we thaw these monsters out and unleash them back on the world like they haven't already done enough. Um yeah, Elliot Abrams is uh, just it, so it, it's great that uh, that Representative Omar called Abrams out on that, and and it, the, his his latest gambit is using humanitarian aid, which he's used in the past to foment uh, regime change in countries. Basically, you you set up a a cache of what is apparently humanitarian aid, but it's being delivered with military vehicles, and maybe it's just humanitarian aid, or maybe it's it's a stockpile of weapons. Uh, he's, he's done you that You mean in the as past. in virtually every other time this has been used? And I want to actually name also the fact that National Public Radio uh, again is calling for the use of this sort of aid as part of a regime change strategy. So I've just about had it with NPR being used as the example uh, of liberal thinking or leftist thinking when NPR is yet again another example uh, of uh, the drumbeat for the neoliberal agenda. Well, David, now with this particular article, I want to highlight that this is actually calling out the humanitarian mission as being problematic, as being politicized. The headline is, oh a little, is a little wonky, right? So the headline is U.S. masses aid along Venezuelan border as some humanitarian groups warn of risks. So the use of some in any kind of headline is what we call a weasel word. Uh, but the actual reporting is pretty, is okay. The lead paragraph um, in, includes... Uh, that this humanitarian mission is designed to foment regime change, regime change in Venezuela, which is why much of the international aid community wants nothing to do with it. So in this article, NPR is clearly calling out this ploy by Elliot Abrams and the Trump administration. So once again, not, not one, but two corrections on the part of a Green Way Forward, uh, both of which in the, uh, in the course of mere minutes away from making them. So I will happily stand corrected that NPR actually is offering a critique uh, of Elliot Abrams. I also uh, really want to point out something. Uh, uh, and Michael, I, I want to make sure that I've got this right, that I'm seeing in a lot of sources that apparently uh, Russia and Putin wants to keep Maduro in power. Uh, have you been seeing the same thing? Yes, I have. And So it, it, what does that tell us again about Trump as Putin's puppet? Like, how do we square this? What the hell? Well, we square it by 
just calling it out that the Trump Russia hysteria is essentially a conspiracy theory. And there's really no rational argument or presentation of empirical evidence that will dissuade adherence to a conspiracy theory uh, because they want to believe as the old X-Files poster said. (laughs) And so uh, it, it is in the political interest and in the monetary interest of the uh, of MSNBC and the Democratic Party to keep pushing this Russia Trump hysteria to cover up the their own flaws and limitations and and servitude to the corporate state and uh, and blatant examples like this and also uh, Trump the Trump administration sending uh, uh, weapons to the Ukraine, to, uh, to factions of the Ukraine that are fighting Russia there or, or want to, to oppose Russian influence there. It just doesn't add up. And it just speaks to how it's all, it's all built on air. It's just McCarthyism. No, it really is the new McCarthyism. And the reality is that the entire Russia, Russia, Russia uh, narrative is completely failing on any of the facts, right? I mean, there literally, there's nothing there. There's no there there. But somehow, both Rachel Maddow and the entire CNN slash, you know, like, you know, corporate media, the neoliberal echo chamber has not given up on it. What do you make of that, Michael? MSNBC is the highest rated news network on cable. Why on earth would they give up? It's working for them. And, you know, for a lot of Democrats, it's working for them. Democrats in 2016, they spent more time running against Trump than the actual the actual opponents in whatever congressional or local or gubernatorial races they were actually running in. So it's working for them, if only to distract people uh, with this neo McCarthyism. Oh, and by the way, using it to uh, demonize anyone whose political positions that they oppose, including people in their own party. Right. I, I, I can tell you, it's 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 shocking to me to see just how often and how effective the anybody but Trump mantra. Uh, it's happening at least within Democratic Party circles, which is why I'll tell you, Michael, I think that the Green Party needs to really focus on uh, uh, persuading people who have given up uh, on elections or maybe have never voted or once voted and don't do it anymore. Like there, I think, is fertile ground for us to actually go off after the, you know, cast your vote for the Green Party as a way to send a big middle finger uh, to the establishment elite. I think that that's a very fertile place for Greens uh, to be laboring. Well, let's call it fertile, but a long growing season. Because the, <laughs> the people who have never voted before are going to be the hardest people to get to vote. They just are. That's why mainstream candidates only focus on uh, the the people that they know have voted a lot. They, well, look up. They, they they know know how do you know that the the rhetoric and the language uh, is co- they're called the chronic voter. That is the people who vote uh, over and over again, literally as if it's some sort of disease or malady. That chronic voter. So I think your point is well made, and I'm not saying it's either or. I actually think the Green Party can and will grow from two sources. One. 
the progressive who is finally waking up or had enough or willing to demand more in your language. Uh, and that group of people frequently are already members or at least once were members of the Democratic Party. And they go through a procession that goes like this. I'm a Democrat. Then I'm an uneasy Democrat. I keep watching and paying attention and demanding more. And I become a, a disgruntled Democrat. I continue to watch. I demand more. I become a disgusted Democrat. And it culminates with a former Democrat. I'm out. I'm done. And then this is a place where the Green Party can make a pickup. The other group of people, and again, it's not either or, the other group of person is the one who has either never voted or has given up on the idea of voting. I think that both of those groups uh, can actually be fertile places for us to grow. And I challenge any Green Party member, choose one or do both. But at the end of the day, it doesn't have to be one or the other, but recognize that there are two targets uh, there are two uh, buckets. There are two places where Green Party growth can really come from. Right. And that we we will need to differentiate the tactics that we use to reach those folks. And we should expect different timelines on the return on investment. So if you're a green out there and you are really motivated to reach folks who have never voted before to get them to vote green in 2020, you need to start now. Like you're actually already behind the clock. And right. that's about, you know, being involved in your, your local community, mapping out your own personal network of how you can reach folks and and, you know, and forming those relationships and forming trust. Because if these are people who have lost faith in the voting system, they've lost trust in the voting system or they've never had the trust to participate in the first place. First, they're going to have to trust you and they're not going to know they're not going to care how much, you know, until they know how much you care. And so it's a long term yeah. Uh, project, but it will return uh, on the effort that we put into it, and we must put that effort into it. We just have to manage our expectations about what that's going to look like, so we can be strategic. And, and I appreciate that, Michael. And it, it, it reminds me of how you frequently use this platform, this program, a Green Way Forward, uh, to encourage Greens to get involved in movement work organizations, constituencies that are doing work on the ground, wherever you live, work, and play, and building those authentic relationships. Um, Michael, I want to make sure that we, uh, since you are, uh, I know you lived in New York City uh, for quite some time, you're still a New York State resident, I feel like we got to talk about Amazon and what we, what happened there. I'm going to kick it to you and ask you, give us the nut, nut, nutshell version of what happened and most importantly, why. Well, Amazon pulled out to the shock of many. I mean, even I think to the shock of people who were organizing resistance to Amazon in New York City, they were surprised that Amazon and Jeff Bezos pulled out the way that they have. As of now, there will be no HQ2 in Long Island City in New York City. And so uh, we need to look at how that happened. And I think that Amazon and Jeff Bezos, for all of their power, I think they've got a glass jaw because they have been used to being catered to and sort of uh, and pampered by, by municipalities and by other corporations for so long. I think that Jeff Bezos and Amazon, I think they were galled by the resistance that they were encountering, that any 
city would be less than worshipful and and appreciative and just unwaveringly devoted to them and their arrival it was just a shock to them and so uh it 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 this struggle while it has resulted in a, a victory it has exposed some schisms within the labor movement or when i'm speaking of, uh, to organized labor in this case and of course, the Democratic Party power structure in New York City, in terms of New York City being a, a union town and arguably America's strongest union town, and how different aspects of organized labor were dealing with Amazon or were hoping to deal with Amazon to get more union jobs in there, as opposed to the organized labor and other uh, militant labor factions saying, no Amazon in New York City until they allow workers to exercise their right to organize. And, you know, I really appreciate that critique, Michael. And I also thank you for pointing out that it was neighborhood resistance. It was organized labor. It was protest. It was demonstrations. AOC absolutely added her voice to that. But this was not a AOC victory. This was a victory of organizing on the ground, in the community, demanding more. Absolutely. And, and also, we can't lose sight of this race to the bottom of corporate welfare and corporate giveaways when we put cities and states against each other to house or, or to, to make a home for these corporations in, in an economy where even the cities that are supposedly doing well, there's uh, the, the economic recovery from 2008 has been weak. And where uh, we're in the cities where you have a, a fairly decent job market, you often have an abysmal housing market, especially for renters. And so we cannot allow corporations like Amazon to pit communities in a hunger games against each other. And that's exactly what Amazon did. And even with their withdrawing from New York City, the fact that they got countless cities from across the country to turn over all of their master plans for development in their city to just hand them over to them. And they're going to use that data for everything from marketing to their other potential headquarters expansions. That already was a travesty. And, and let's name the corporate-controlled Democratic Party leadership was actually – carrying the water for Bezos and Amazon through that process, Absolutely. which brings us, I really want to uh, make sure that we get to Brandon who writes in to say, how can we as greens keep the democratic party from infiltrating and taking over grassroots movements? Uh, Brandon said, I started this satirical group in Cincinnati and the Dems took me over really quick. Michael, I know that you are a, a uh, an analyst of media uh, you have uh, uh, you have studied media both theoretically and practice it. So, what advice would you give to Brandon? How can we as Greens keep from the Democrats from infiltrating and taking over grassroots movements? It's a huge question, and there are no easy answers to that. I'm sorry to say. I think first and foremost, uh, with any organization that we establish, we have to place a priority on political independence and financial independence so that we don't find ourselves um, caught in the, the purse strings of funding from democratic 
party aligned sources, whether it's official uh, Democratic organs or their related organs. Uh, and so that's difficult because that means real you're grassroots literally talking about the foundation world and the nonprofit industrial complex that has been used by the neoliberal Democratic Party uh, to basically uh, prevent social movements from being more militant. Absolutely. And we have to look at those groups like, say, Indivisible, which like they don't claim that they're they're a front group for the Democratic Party because front groups never claim who they're fronting for. But that's how they function. And there are other groups that that work in that way. And we have to be disciplined about understanding what those groups and, and who they really serve. And we work with them on issues when uh, when we need to, because we need to move those issues forward. But we also understand that those those organizations will never be fair partners to us, that we will have to work twice as hard to make sure that our contributions and our leadership is recognized within those issue movements, and that uh, and we have to make sure we don't get undercut by those organizations when we actually force elected officials to the bargaining table. Uh, second uh, is that we have to create, keep creating our own media and we have to keep being disciplined about getting whatever coverage we can out of mainstream media. We had three examples on this episode where Greens were able to get out our message through mainstream uh, media outlets. In the case of NPR, it's nominally public media, but of course we know they get all kinds of uh, corporate sponsorship through underwriting and such. And then also in in just two out-and-out for-profit outlets. So we have to hustle to make sure that our message and that our work gets recognized, not because we're narcissists, but because we need people to see that Greens are capable of, of leading and that we are committed to serving the public and serving on these social change movements. Well said, Michael. And it really is a great place to wrap up this program. Uh, I do want to remind folks, if you have been watching, that you are watching and or listening to A Green Way Forward. Uh, we are on Facebook live streaming now. If you're watching us there, if you're listening to us on the audio podcast. But please remember, if you're watching on Facebook, share this link Uh, on your own page or any page that you manage. If you are listening to a podcast, forward the podcast. And regardless of how you're hearing this, whether it's live or after the fact, please go to the website, agreenwayforward.org and sign up so we can let you know about upcoming programs and guests like our guest next Monday, February 25th, former Maine Representative John Eater, who was a Green elected to the Maine State Legislature, uh, who championed ranked choice voting while he was in office and was one of the leaders in uh, the grassroots movement to win ranked choice voting, not once, but not twice, but literally three times before uh, the electorate will be joining us as a guest. So, Michael, any closing thoughts before we close out this program? Uh, Just that I want everyone to keep fighting and to keep spreading the word about this program. Thank you so much, Michael. Thanks for all that you do. I want to thank, though, most importantly, you, the viewer, listener. Remember, we're getting larger, stronger, better organized every day. And the way you build the Green Party is by doing it where you live, work and play. Peace. 
A Green Way Forward is broadcast live on Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time from Dr. Jill Stein's Facebook page. Subscribe to our podcast and e-newsletter at agreenwayforward.org to make sure that you never miss an episode. You can also find us and rate us on iTunes, with more podcast platforms being added each week. Our theme music is Retro Future Dirty by Kevin McLeod, whose fine music can be found at incomptech.com and is available for use under a Creative Commons attribution license. This is Michael O'Neill for David Cobb reminding you to please spread the word about A Green Way Forward and to send us your thoughtful questions and comments to agreenwayforward at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.